Hi, and welcome to Deep North, the Iceland Review podcast where we share stories from Iceland. My name is Greta Sigríður Einarsdóttir, and with me is Erik Pomrenke, who's going to talk about flatkökur, the charred rye flatbread that's perhaps the most popular of Iceland's traditional foods, especially when served with a thick layer of butter and some smoked lamb. Born and bred. A food history of the humble flatkaka. On visits to my grandfather's farm, I would often follow him around, helping him with the farmyard tasks. In the early afternoon, perhaps after mending a fence, we would come inside to have some coffee and flatbread, topped with butter and lamb, that my grandmother had laid out. Taking off his rubber boots that smelled of rust and horse, he would smile with satisfaction at the simple fare, mumbling happily, Echtamatur, real food. Like language and music, flatbread is a near-universal feature of cultures throughout the world. And for a cuisine such as Iceland's, which is often so different even from the other Nordic nations, flatbread is also a humble connection to the wider world. To this day, Icelandic flatbreads, or flatkökur, can be found in any Icelandic supermarket, making them arguably the most versatile and popular of Icelandic gamaldagsmatur, or traditional food. Often pre-cut into halves, they are traditionally eaten topped with a smear of butter and smoked lamb, hankikut, or liver pate, kindakaiva. Modeled with specks of char and perforated by fork tines, a flatbread has a subtle flavor, so often paired with butter and lamb that the light burn marks and smokiness of the meat merge into one. Standard flatbreads found on a grocery store shelf will contain a mixture of wheat flour and rye, but traditionally they were made exclusively with rye. Often, other additives, such as dried moss and seaweed, were also used to stretch out the precious imported flour. This modern lunchtime and family gathering staple is, like so much of what's considered traditional Icelandic food, a relic from a time of scarcity. When I first tried Haukart, the notorious fermented shark native to Icelandic cuisine, my uncle proffered me a small yellow cube on a toothpick, grinning devilishly. You'll love it, he said. It's terrible. Brought up on dried fish and cod liver oil, it was not the smell that deterred me, though it is admittedly rather unpleasant. It was the gelatinous texture I found most repellent making the experience last much longer than one wants. Still, washed down with a stiff drink, it's not quite as bad as it's made out to be. That little phrase, you'll love it, it's terrible, captures something important about Icelandic attitudes towards traditional food. Icelanders are a people who get through things, it says. But in the grim determination for survival, there's a perverse pleasure as well. Collective suffering often brings people together, and something of this masochistic ritual lingers today in Icelanders' attitudes towards their traditional foods, best characterized by Thoramatur. Thoramatur is the collective name given to the foods eaten at Thoroblot, 
a midwinter festival based on the old Icelandic calendar. If you've seen a YouTube video of an adventurous tourist in Iceland tasting something rather challenging, chances are it's a form of thoramatur. The menu is broken down into two categories, fermented and unfermented. To the latter category belong many uncontroversial favorites, such as hankikut, or smoked lamb. But to the former group belong various farmhouse curiosities, including ram's testicles pickled in whey, and pickled meat boiled and wrapped in offal. Today, you can buy a selection of these traditional foods in Icelandic grocery stores, stored in industrial strength buckets to prevent unnecessary olfactory trauma to innocent shoppers. In a land of scarcity like pre-industrial Iceland, these foods were what was available in the depths of winter. Additionally, the lack of available firewood in Iceland made extracting salt from seawater through boiling impractical. In terms of food preservation, pickling was the only game in town. So when Icelanders gathered round for Thoroblot, no doubt dishes that we recognize today as Thoramatur must have made it to the table. And yet, the particular spread of Thoramatur in its modern form is very much a recent invention originating only in 1958 at the Reykjavik restaurant Neustith. Even then, such foods were perceived as something from the olden days. And as Iceland quickly urbanized in the post-war years, the sense developed that the rural heartland of Iceland was quickly being displaced by the urban culture of Reykjavik. When Neustith began to offer their traditional spread of good old country cooking, it was just as much an expression of this urban versus rural dynamic as an attempt to preserve an already fading tradition. Eating Thoramatur is a sort of historic reenactment performed at specific occasions to strengthen the bond to a past long gone. It is no surprise that Thoramatur also forms a key event in the social calendars of many Icelandic emigrant communities, such as the West Icelanders in Canada in the American Midwest. Eating such foods becomes a rite of passage, and for second and third generation Icelanders abroad, what better way to connect with the past than the communal consumption of fermented offal? While the flatbread is present at the Thoroblot buffet, it isn't limited to such an occasion. Traditional foods, after all, can still be delightful. Up until the importation of colonial goods through Denmark, Icelandic foodways remained more or less frozen in time. It was well into the 19th century when Danish merchants began to supply Icelanders with sugar, coffee, tea, butter, raisins, and a host of everyday luxuries now taken for granted. The introduction of flour also caused a minor revolution in food customs, in what Nana Rukvaldardotir, one of the foremost food historians in Iceland, has called the, quote, Great Cake Deluge. Where visitors might previously have been offered plates heaped with smoked lamb, dried fish, and other preserved foods, middle and upper-class households could now offer baked goods to their guests. Cakes of various kinds exploded into the Icelandic diet, and to this day, they remain a staple offering at most coffee tables. But prior to the large-scale import of flour that began in the 19th century, bread played a relatively minor role in Icelandic diets. 
For the first period of Icelandic settlement, about the first 200 years, some grains such as barley, rye, wheat, and oats could be grown in small amounts. These were never highly productive crops in Iceland's climate, but of these, barley seems to have by far been the most popular, able to be grown in Iceland's grassy lowlands. However, Iceland's ecosystem began to decline with the deforestation of the island. Following the beginning of the Little Ice Age in the 14th century, grain production in Iceland completely collapsed, with barley cultivation only resuming in the 20th century. While barley is the only grain to have seen any successful production in Iceland, it was imported rye flour that became the grain staple of Icelandic diets, wheat flour being reserved for the refined breads of the wealthy. But for much of Icelandic history, imported flour wasn't used to make bread. Instead, porridge was the staple of choice, presumably because people considered it more economical to thin out the small amount of grain into larger batches of porridge. What bread there was was known in several forms in pre-industrial Iceland. Besides flatbread, refined wheat cakes, fried in pans, were common among the well-to-do. In addition to pot bread, in which the bread would be baked in a Dutch oven, either in the kitchen hearth or in a hot spring. There is also a reason to believe that different regions of Iceland knew flatbreads by different names. We have, for example, a story from Vopnafjöður, a fishing village in northeast Iceland, which refers to flatbread as dindit. Quote, An old vagrant with a bad reputation came to town one day. He was given a flatbread, dindit, and some butter to spread on it. He was then heard muttering, I should be careful, I should be careful. Someone present asked, What are you being careful of? The wretch said, To make sure there's enough butter for the flatbread. Like in many folktales, it's hard to find a moral, so far removed we are now from the story world. But besides the curious name for flatbread it preserves, it also serves as a time capsule for historical Icelandic attitudes towards food. On the one hand, food was scarce in pre-industrial Iceland, and extra mouths to feed must never have been welcome. On the other hand, these conditions of scarcity were precisely the reason why generosity was one of the highest values an Icelandic farmer could embody. These days, there are several ways to make an Icelandic flatbread in a modern home kitchen, most of which involve the use of an electric stove top. One of the distinctive features of the flatbread is its char marks. This can be achieved by simply placing the flatbread in a dry pan and cooking on both sides. But many Icelanders will either cook the flatbread directly on the stove burner or else use a torch to lightly char the bread. Most home cooks will then quickly dip the flatbread in water so that it doesn't dry out too quickly. However, even these char marks, which most would recognize as a sine qua non of the Icelandic flatbread, may be up for debate. A classic recipe found in Hallgerður Gísladóttir's landmark book Íslensk Matarheft, Icelandic Food Customs, specifically calls for an oiled pan to avoid burning. Perhaps the housewives of the interwar years did not recall as fondly as we do cooking on hot stones, and welcomed their new electric stovetops without nostalgia. Is the real flatbread from the post-war period? 
Or does authenticity simply mean older? In a sense, one could argue that uncharred flatbread is obviously preferable, and it's understandable that a generation of Icelandic cooks would prefer the cleaner, more controllable electric stove. But at the same time, there is something curious about the length that we will go to in order to reintroduce the char marks when we have perfectly modern kitchens. Today, foodies visiting Iceland will find open-faced flatbread sandwiches sitting under plastic wrap at a variety of cafes and brunch buffets throughout the nation. They are a staple of school cafeterias, weddings, and funerals. Visits to relatives, break room snacks, and afternoon coffee spreads. Some chefs, however, aren't content to let this national icon waste away on shrink-wrapped lunch trays. Represented abroad by such star chefs as Rene Redzepi, Klaus Meyer, Magnus Nielsen, and more recently by native Icelander Gisli Matthias Oithenson, new Nordic cuisine has brought about a transformation of our attitudes towards food emphasizing the local, seasonal, and natural. In pursuit of these goals, new Nordic cuisine has also reignited an interest in traditional Scandinavian foods, limited as they were by what was available at any given time of year. Dill Restaurant, owned and operated by chef Gunnar Katl-Gislason, opened in 2009 and has been at the forefront of Icelandic food culture earning Iceland's first-ever Michelin star in 2017. For chef Gunnar, Icelandic flatbread represents a unique intersection of the past and present. One of the things we try to do in the restaurant is to remember how we ate them in our childhood, how our parents and grandparents ate them. I think one of the best things we can do for a patron is to give them this glimpse of childhood simplicity again. Joking, he adds, you know, like in Ratatouille. The development of the recipe for flatbread consisted of everything from historical research, kitchen experimentation, and, of course, asking little old ladies for their recipes, preferably passed down through several generations. When I was younger, I used to work at a farm up in Vatsdalur by Bundos, Gunnar recalls. The farmer's wife there made everything herself, flatbread, rye bread, pancakes, dumplings, you name it. Later on, when we opened the restaurant, I went back to visit and get as many of her recipes as I could. Dill's flatbread is reinventing a tradition, but they're certainly not just reiterating it. For starters, they most often use barley flour instead of rye. We get this wonderful barley grown in Flotsdalsherath in East Iceland, he says. But we also love the idea of the whole barley in the flatbread. So we also cook the grains and let it cool before adding it into the dough. This addition also creates a heterogeneous texture in the flatbread, making it more than just a sideline to the main act. Some traditional recipes also call for the addition of rutabaga for their earthy sweetness, which Dill has also experimented with. The subtle texture and taste of flatbread also means it pairs well with many things. Gunnar is, of course, not content to serve up the most obvious renditions of the classic, and patrons at Dill can expect to see it topped with dehydrated and powdered trout, microgreens, flecks of kelp, and pickled preserves. Sometimes our toppings have nothing to do with tradition, Gunnar admits. But at the end of the day, 
it goes so well with many things. In addition to the taste and texture of flatbread, Chef Gunnar is a firm believer that the char itself plays an integral part of the flatbread experience. We char them to the point of burning, Gunnar says. It's definitely how it would have been back in the day. There is actually some controversy in the culinary world about this. Foodies often talk about sweet, salty, sour, bitter, and umami as the building blocks of flavor. But the process of carbonization, of burning, brings out other elements in the food that can't simply be described by these categories. When done properly, though, charring food adds a whole other dimension to it. At the end of the day, the survival of flatbread in both everyday diets and fine dining represents a small miracle for Gunnar. It's definitely one of those things that could have died out a long time ago. It's very simple. When I think about all the new foods that are available to us, the selection we have now, it's amazing how everyone is still eating it. My wife and kids alone go through tons of it every week. This, then, is the lasting meaning of flatbread. Rather like this island itself, it's a relic of the past that's found its own place in the modern world. Humble and unassuming, whether found on grocery store shelves or Michelin star plates, just something to ruminate on at your next meal. Thank you for that, Eric. Thank you. So, uh, tell me a little bit about the research that you dove into for this article. Um, was there anything that didn't make the cut? Yeah, I mean, when you're writing about this kind of stuff at the intersection of food and culture and history, uh, there's just so many little things that are kind of harder to draw into like a bigger narrative. Um, I'm not going to bore anybody with uh, the history of grain production in Iceland, which is actually fascinating. Um, but, you know, just one of these like little weird historical anecdotes that I kind of came across is there is this like 15th century German cartographer um, and he was actually one of the first uh, kind of globe makers in the world. And on his globe, uh, which is uh, still exists to this day, it's called Erdapfel, uh, which is, yeah, I mean, just the word for globe in German. Um, and he kind of marked Iceland uh, with like a very kind of little funny anecdote in the way that, you know, like old cartographers kind of put, you know, um, here be monsters or whatever, and you kind of put like a little description of the country. Um, and basically he kind of described uh, Iceland as like an island uh, inhabited by people who lived in such poverty that they were kind of uh, willing to sell their children to passing merchants uh, for a taste <laughs> of bread. Um, and so obviously there is some historical embellishment there. Uh, but, you know, like the kind of truth at the heart of that story is that grain was really scarce in Iceland. And, you know, also there is some sort of awareness of this somehow, like in the outside world, like people were aware that Iceland was a country of scarcity. Uh, bread was not really common in Iceland. Um, and I mean, like for a long time, flour was basically just reserved for like communion wafers, actually. Like it was not really a part of people's diets at all, uh, except for like very special occasions. Yeah, it's also interesting to me that rye became the grain of choice because uh, it's not like they were growing it here either. It was all imported. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that there might be maybe a misconception that rye 
grows here, and it it really doesn't. Um, but I mean, I think that uh, I mean, like like it probably has to do with like Rukbreith and uh, just rye bread being this icon of Icelandic food, uh, like these little dense loaves, um, you know, that were historically cooked in the hot springs. Um, and I think that that's kind of been so connected to what people think of when they think of Icelandic food uh, that, yeah, there's like this kind of connection between Iceland and rye. And uh, rye is also a grain that's popular in other Nordic countries. Yeah, like exactly. That. But yeah, I mean, so like this was just all imported. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so let's talk about the traditional Icelandic food in general. There's not really a lot of it, not re- not many classic recipes that are older than uh, a few decades or 100 years. Yeah, you know, there is, you know, like there are, like, like, like when we talk about traditional food, I think that there is two really broad groups. I mean, there's this kind of, explosion of cookbooks that kind of comes along with the introdu- with, with, with the introduction of, you know, industrial, like manufactured modern foods, everything that comes in a can. So, you know, you have all of these kind of cookbooks for housewives from like the 40s to, you know, like up through like the 80s, basically, where it's, you know, like everything comes from a can. Uh, there's a lot of pineapple, there's a lot of ham, you know, like this kind of like heavily, um, you know, cream and mayonnaise-based food. I mean, I do think it's fair to call that, like, pretty traditional in a way mm-hmm. because, I mean, everyone's kind of grown up through several generations eating this. Um, you know, and then we also have, like, gameldagsmatur and, like, things that kind of reach into a deeper history. Uh, but, you know, I mean, something that is interesting, right, is that, like, a lot of this thoramatur, it did exist uh, before 1958, of course, uh, but it was really kind of formalized as a kind of cuisine that you engage with in a certain way Mm. around that time. And so people were eating foods like this, you know, and it's a sort of a manufactured tradition. It's, it's like designed to be this traditional food. Yeah. I mean, Manufactured, maybe. I mean, that kind of also like implies like um, like an evil plot by like the <laughs> restaurant at Noisted or something. Well, have you tried shark? It's pretty evil. Uh, yes, um, it's not the most pleasant, but you know, I mean, yeah, I think that I I think the best way for thinking about it, right, is like this idea of historical reenactment. Mm. You know, it's like there are several times a year that are kind of reserved for this special ceremony. You kind of just have to do it to kind of maintain your connection with the past and you do it with other people it's communal there is this kind of ritual aspect to it um and yeah you know but um this category though is still a relatively recent one Mm. even though these foods you know do stretch into a much deeper history for sure to me it's also interesting to think about uh what culinary traditions have one have been kept alive and which one have been remembered because I do believe there's a lot of our culinary heritage that we've just that's just been forgotten and was never documented. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I mean, I guess just the first thing that kind of comes up is just like this little weird story from Vopnefjordur, um, and there are like so many things like that that are also just lost. Mm-hmm. And you know, like the only reason why we know that there is that there was this word this other word for a flatbread like we don't we don't know if that was its own kind of flatbread mm. or if that was just another word for just a standard rye flatbread 
And, you know, like there's just this one historical source that records this story one time. Mm -hmm. And if that had been lost to us, like we would have no idea that there was that there that there used to be this thing called a dindit. And, you know, when you just kind of think about all the other things that have been lost, you know, uh, the modern I mean, uh, cookbooks, you know, didn't really start appearing in like middle class households. Um, just like so many other things in Iceland uh, mm -hmm. until like the interwar period, basically. I mean, like there were some in like upper class households and stuff. And you, if you um, think about that time in Iceland as well, it was the time when people were doing their very best to turn away from the old traditions. They were uh, building up this new modern society filled with, uh, you know, bourgeoisie uh, traditions <laughs> borrowed from other countries. So maybe there were some culinary traditions that they were actively trying to forget. You don't know. Or we don't know what they would have looked like. Oh yeah, certainly. Yeah, you know, and it's kind of hard to talk about this stuff because there's no, or rather, the 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 source situation, I guess, is pretty scarce. Mm. Um, but you know, I mean, I can certainly imagine um, an upper middle class and upwardly mobile Icelandic family kind of, uh, you know, suppressing the more farmhouse kind of aspects of their diets and kind of aspiring to eat a more cosmopolitan. Danish diet in a lot of ways. Exactly. As you mentioned, the uh, char marks on the flatbread. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 You know, I mean, I like, I, I think that's actually pretty interesting mm. um, because it does get really quickly to an interesting question of like, what is more authentic? Like is, is authenticity something that's just simply older and it's like more historical in that way? And, you know, like, when do we kind of draw the line in history as to, like, what the real version was? Because there are all of these uh, kind of classic cookbook recipes, you know, f again, from this kind of, like, from the heyday of housewife cookbooks from, like, the 40s to the 80s that do specifically call for oiling the pan. And, you know, like, that doesn't sound like a big deal, but, you know, like, you you oil the pan precisely to prevent the, the, the flotkaka from burning. And, you know, I think now, like, we have been eating processed diets for so long. There's something exciting and primitive about actual char marks on our food. And, like, we kind of <laughs> crave going back to the original, going back to everything that's simple. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, like, the second that Icelandic housewives had access to the kinds of technologies just indoor ovens, uh, stovetops, stuff like that. Like, like the second they had access to these technologies, like, like they were very happy to just, you know, cook, cook a nice little flatbread on the stove. Don't burn it. Have a little bit of oil in the pan. You know, just make something nice and crispy that, you know, in some sense might have resembled a little bit more, almost like a tortilla or something. Mm. You know, I mean, it also kind of in a weird way has to do with. Um, I guess some people talk about something called a negativity bias, uh, where we sometimes kind of just associate uh, the past with, for lack of a better word, everything being worse. So like <laughs> like like when like when TV makers want to make a TV show about the Middle Ages seem like really real and authentic and gritty, you know, you put in a lot of violence, you put in a lot of swear words, you put in like bodily functions and stuff, um, and like I think in the back of a lot of our minds like the past is this like gritty dark place mm. and everything that's like authentic um you know like has some marker of that on it 
and um, and if you think about it in the cultural context of uh, Iceland uh, and its fight for independence in the early 20th century, uh, the preceding period was actively framed as awful yeah. <laughs> in order to yeah. glorify a past uh, just after the settlement, country settlement. So yeah, that definitely. sort of affected everything we think about traditional foods is um, affected by the return to a glorified past that was very much the trend in the early 20th century when our grandmothers were learning how to cook. Yeah, you know, or this isn't so much the Icelandic flatbread, but, you know, I mean, um, this explosion of food technologies and, like, the beginning of processed food, I mean... Now that we know better and we're kind of looking back on the past, uh, we kind of see it through one lens. But, you know, like it was revolutionary to have like standardized flour that mm. was clean and filtered well and didn't have debris and insects in it and stuff. And, you know, so to, to kind of, you know, I think that sometimes when we like uh, think of, you know, olden day food, uh, it's kind of easy to make fun of it as all, you know, just this kind of heavy cream and mayonnaise-based stuff. Um, but, you know, I mean, like the beginning of factory-produced processed bread uh, in the rest of the world was actually quite a revolution in mm -hmm. its own way. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, also just like the ability to just produce uh, like food that's a little bit more standardized. You know, I mean, like this was actually a pretty big deal at the time. And... You know, and like also just something that I thought was kind of interesting in writing the piece is just coming across all, you know, I mean, not just different types of bread, but just all these variations of flatbread. Because I think now, like, we go to the grocery store and you just see the stacks of the flat cocoa, and you kind of forget that, you know, this is something that you can make at home. You can make them as big or as small as you want. Mm. There is also, yeah, all these different names for different sizes of flatbread. Um, like, I thought it was kind of cool that, um, there were kind of child-specific uh, flat cocoa called goma, which would be just kind of like the size of like your hand or like your palm or something of a kid. Oh, I thought that was just kind of kind of cute. <laughs> <laughs> well, I could talk about uh, the food history of Iceland and the history of flat cocoa for uh, a long time, but I'm not gonna. I'm gonna ask you a bit more about the flat cocoa in the modern context. Can you tell me a little bit about what you think about the flat cocoa's place in uh, a modern diet, specifically the context in which it is eaten. You definitely do find it at, yeah, you know, uh, cafes, uh, you know, more just kind of classic Icelandic eateries. And yes, it's also been kind of received and updated by new Nordic cuisine. But, you know, I mean, I think that the quintessential flatbread environment is a family gathering uh you know you're maybe having coffee with an aunt or there's a family reunion or you know at a wedding or a funeral and just all of these times when people come together there's you know three four or five thermoses filled with coffee mm -hmm. uh and there's just you know kind of big trays of things out like on a buffet uh, i think that's kind of the flat kaka in its natural environment. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. It's also a picnic food of my youth. I remember distinctly yeah. moments of sitting out, trying to enjoy a little bit of warmth while trying to 
uh, ignore the wind and uh, eating a bit of flat cracker with uh, smoked lamb. Yeah, I mean, to this day, like if I'm going on a hike, I'll put a couple uh, flat cooked in my backpack. I mean, like it, it packs really well. You can't really smash them. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you know, just have a little thing of uh, hunky cooked or something and an apple and it's a pretty good lunch. Go back to uh, the gathering, uh, what you serve at the gathering. Um, I feel like that uh, definitely changes with the trends. We can all think back to manners Latin feasts in <laughs> of the 90s and, and earlier. But um, there are some things that always remain, like the like the liters upon liters of of black coffee being served, um, flat cookers, uh, and it sort of represents maybe also what the household would pride itself off in a time gone by. Yeah. For example, coffee. I mean, I remember my grandmother telling me that uh, you would buy green coffee beans at the store and every household would roast the mm. coffee beans themselves. Yeah. You had to be very careful not to over roast them or else you get a burnt taste. And you could buy like chicory root to uh you know, extend the Yeah, yeah. yeah. But serving only coffee made from coffee beans was like a that was like a real mark of a, a generous housewife. That's one of my little favorite uh moments in independent people is like these farmers kind of like ranking each other and kind of like having like higher and lower status by who kind of serves the best coffee mm. like uh like 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 whose farm is best to go get a cup of coffee at i always thought that was really nice you know actually uh something um yeah just kind of going back to this little family farmhouse pride something that i also thought was pretty cool um this wasn't actually flat cooked um but there was another just kind of um bread uh like like this this pot bread and um i thought it was really interesting because you can actually still go to the national library and see these things and there are these kind of like wooden like it basically looks like a pot lid but it's like a stamp mm -hmm. and you would you know like have the bread in the pot and then you kind of press this stamp into it um and each family you know would kind of have their own design mm. uh like often they had little logos on them kind of like, i mean like almost like branding uh but you know there'd be like a little slogan or something um i remember one of the slogans was just you know i mean it's not really like a joke or a saying it's just kind of like um yeah i i i think one of the slogans that i came across was just uh like i'm better eaten than stored <laughs> or something like that but you know i mean like each farmhouse would have kind of had their own little style of making breads and you know mm -hmm. i can totally imagine you know at like communal gatherings like one family's bread being especially good or like another family's bread being famous for something um so i just thought that was kind of cool yeah that's really interesting um and i mean it's it's also uh flat but it was definitely the workhorse it was something that you would uh because when you compare it to Leuvabrauth, uh, yeah. which is was particularly made in northeast Iceland, but has later spread all over the country, and it's but now something that most families make for Christmas, and it's a, a delicate cake rolled thin, made of flour, uh, carved in intricate patterns and deep fried. 
So it makes a really pretty, um, very labor-intensive <laughs> bread that's served at, uh, around Christmas time. Uh, yeah, and specifically, uh, there are these little rollers, uh, and you kind of roll them across the Leuvebreuth and kind of prick up uh, these little kind of marks that they leave with like a fork. Yeah, uh, although people of the older, genera- older generation tell me that the rollers are uh, cheating. Oh, okay. Should do it all by knife. Well, <laughs> <laughs> when, 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 when my sister and I would make Leuvebreuth, we'd have the little, little assembly line and... Uh, I, I think when I was younger, I was just uh, the one kind of like pricking it up with the fork and she would kind of do the roller. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we uh, we use the roller too. <laughs> Don't tell anyone. <laughs> so a common reader question uh, has just actually been how to make flatkaka at home, uh, specifically if there are any good recipes that can be recommended. Yes, uh, the easiest way to make flatbread is if you ha- if you have a stone hearth in your home, then you can make it the authentic way. <laughs> uh, if not, there are a couple of different uh, methods. Um, cooking them directly on uh, the metal burners on your stove, if you have an electric stove, is one. Um, these days, uh, many people have uh, stoves that don't really offer that option, maybe induction stove. Uh, but you could use a gas stove. Uh, the way my dad does it he, is he just takes a gas burner, uh, puts them on the bottom lid, uh, or no, not the lid, on the bottom of a pan, yeah. chars them. Um, first, for a short time, to sort of dry out the cover, then he flips them over and... Uh, makes the larger char marks and then dunks them in a bowl of water before stacking them so they uh, keep uh, remain soft and pliable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they're great fresh, but they also freeze very well. They're a great food to just sort of make and have. <laughs> you well, yeah, you can really I mean, see why people would eat a lot of it in, uh, in days gone by. And, you know, I mean, like so much traditional food, it is kind of like a project that you do with your family. It's not, I mean, hopefully just one person making it, uh, slaving away, but you know, it's a whole little process, a whole little assembly line uh, yeah. that hopefully the family gets involved in. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, family. I think that's also one of the cool things, um, you know, just having the opportunity uh, with some of these photographs actually in the piece is just seeing actually how they're made. And I think that, you know, so often in the grocery store, uh, we just kind of assume that everything that makes it onto the shelf is just produced in a factory these days or something. Um, but, you know, I mean, to this day, uh, the flatkaka that you buy off the shelf in a grocery store is actually made in a kitchen by people rolling things out with their hands. Uh, there's just this very, I don't know, uh, kind it's of... It's artisanal. Yes, it is very <laughs> artisanal. But yeah, like, there's just like this really cool physicality to it, you know, just... Yeah, the burn definitely. marks and the griddle and all that. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a simple process to make a simple fat bread, but it's uh, and that's maybe why it has, um, why it still remains popular, why we still make it, and and it's just an everyday food that's really good. Yeah, uh, goes well with a lot of different things. What's your favorite topping for a flat bread? You know. Um, of course, the classic is butter and hunky good, at least mm. in my mind. Mm-hmm. That's the classic. Um, but I did uh, take up Brynja's 
recommendation mm-hmm. to try uh, it with uh, the with the paprika spread. Oh, I thought that was very nice. Yeah, so <laughs> I certainly recommend that. <laughs> yeah, just a simple slice of cheese also works works yeah, wonders. Yeah. Okay, thank you for uh, sharing with us a little bit of information about the Hampel Flatkaka, something that maybe a lot of visitors to Iceland might have eaten or should uh, try, but something that we don't always uh, consider. Thank you for talking today. Deep North is the official podcast of Iceland Review, the oldest continuously running English language publication on Iceland's community, nature, and culture. If you've enjoyed listening, please consider subscribing to Iceland Review on our website, giving the podcast a review wherever you're listening, or sharing it with someone you think might be interested. Tak fyrir.